0: If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Tonight we'll be reading verses 13 through 16. We're in a section, uh, Hebrews, as perhaps some of you know, is the hall of faith, so to speak. And he's walking us through the faith of so many of our ancestors who, who had saving faith, like we do in the Messiah who saves us. The writer here at verse 13, having spoken of, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, he sort of sums things up with them in mind and also Jacob and Isaac will speak of and others. He sums up for us, at least for now, uh, some things about the saving faith of these who came before Jesus. And so we want to hear God's word tonight and ponder these things. Let me invite you to give your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. It's on page 1008 of the Black Pew Bible. This is the Word of God. These all died in faith. Let me just say Enoch accepted, of course, and he knows that. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Our father in heaven, be our teacher. Grant us, the Spirit, help us to understand and to believe and to embrace and enjoy the blessings we have in you, from you, through you, and to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Years ago, Melinda and I got our son a book by Randy Alcorn, perhaps some of you read it, called Heaven in that Book. He tells the story of a young uh, uh, Florence Chadwick who in 1952 stepped into the waters of the Pacific off the Catalina Islands to swim to the California mainland. She had previously been the first woman to ever swim the English Channel uh, both directions. Here she had about 22 miles or so as the crow flies. Uh, to get to the mainland. She had uh, entered the waters while it was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the accompanying safety and encouragement boats that were around her and still she swam through fog and cold for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water, the Boats would pull up nearby, and her mom in one of them would encourage her to continue. But finally, she couldn't take it anymore. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she asked to be pulled out, and she was. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half mile away. And at the news conference the next day, she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. The writer here is telling you that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and our forefathers, and they saw the shore. They welcomed it from afar, you understand. But they saw it by faith. They saw it at a distance. They kept their eyes on it. By faith they saw it. By faith they reached it. How do we follow in their footsteps? How do we walk in their faith? We have to get our bearings. We have to know where we are and where we're going. We need to know what we need to have to get there. We, we, we need to get our bearings. And what are those? Let me highlight three things from the passage. At verse 13, we need to recognize our true identity. At verse 14, we need to recognize our only home And at the end of verse 16, we we need to recognize our high privilege, our true identity, our only home, and our high privilege. Let me invite you to consider these things if we're going to get home too. First, recognize your true identity. You have to know who you are. They knew who they were. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He talks about them all dying in faith and not receiving what was promised. Now you understand he means that they had received the promises, but they hadn't received what was promised in the promises. Not... All of it, certainly. They they had received, for instance, the promise of the land. They hadn't received the land. Uh, They had received the promise of this heavenly country that they were longing for, but they hadn't yet received it. They hadn't enjoyed it. And they greeted these promises from a distance. And while doing so, they confessed what? That they were strangers and exiles on the earth they knew their true identity what are we we're strangers and exiles what is that strangers it means foreigners they were aliens it's a often a pejorative term and especially in our day indicating outsiders not uh, not someone from around here someone from a different place someone who perhaps doesn't quite fit in who seems like they don't belong that that was them and they were exiles or sojourners meaning here that they were living in a place that was not their home they uh, their home was elsewhere they were uh, displaced so to speak or or just passing through where they were they're living there temporarily your home is somewhere else that's what they were they were confessing that they were strangers and exiles foreigners and sojourners on the earth and that is the position that we should take for ourselves Is is this our identity that we embrace? It's important that we do so. You understand that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they lived a long time ago and a long time before Jesus came. You may say, so of course they thought this way about themselves. But we live after Jesus. I mean, we should think differently. But you and I shouldn't think differently. We're in the same place as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're walking in the same sandals. Essentially, they didn't receive the better heavenly country God promised to them. And have you? I mean, if this is it, folks, we need to talk because you're crazy. You haven't received it yet either, though. It's been promised. Jesus in John 14, what did he promise? I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. He hasn't come back for you yet to take you that to that place. You've received the promise, but you have not yet enjoyed what was promised. Certainly not all that God has promised to you, though it's all yours in principle. Because you are co-heir with Christ of all things, being bound up with him. And everything is his, and everything that belongs to him is yours. It's yours in principle. Do you then confess that you are a foreigner and an exile, a sojourner on this earth? Is that the way you think of yourself? It's important that you do that. In certain contexts, it's really weird if you don't. I mean, if you go to the car mechanic to have your car worked on, uh, you know, if you walk in there and act like you're the supervisor... It may not go very well, and especially if you don't know the first thing about auto mechanics. Now, what you do is you talk to the supervisor. Now, look, you may be a supervisor in life. You may be a boss of five or ten employees. You may be used to all day long telling people what their job is and seeing that they do it. But when it comes to your car, especially if you know nothing about cars, You walk in there at best as a learner, hoping to understand some of the lingo, and you want them to do what they are equipped to do. You don't try to fix it yourself because that's not your identity, it's not who you are. When you go to the grocery store, assume that you don't go into the grocery store and start rearranging the salad bar, you don't fire the butcher. You don't double the freezers for ice cream, though maybe that was what you would choose to do if you were in charge, but you're not. You come as a customer. And you take things off the shelf, and you go, and you check out at the register, and you stand in line like everyone else because it's not your identity to be the supervisor, to be the boss. You you and I need to live in light of our identity, and your role changes as appropriate to the different place that you're in. What is our identity? It is a Christian. As you live in this world, how do we do it? How do we think about ourselves? What do you say about yourself? Do you say that you are a foreigner and a sojourner? There's an interesting story about uh, an archbishop of the Church of Scotland named Robert Layton. Uh, He was a peaceable man. He was a devout man. He had various kinds of troubles in his own life. And he was a single man. He said if he had any choice in the matter and if God gave him his druthers, he would want to die at an inn. An inn like a motel. He would like to die, and I, I mentioned that he was single because I, I want to die at home with my wife around, you know, if I can. But he wanted to be in an inn because he said that was the most appropriate for one who was on his way through the pilgrimage of this world. Well, God gave him what he wanted, and in 1684, on a trip to London, staying at an inn on Warwick Lane near St. Paul's Cathedral, pleurisy set in which is a kind of lung disease and the pilgrim parted this life and he left his sandals behind to sojourn elsewhere he thought of himself as a pilgrim he wanted to die like a pilgrim and he did how do you think of yourself in this world I don't ask you that so that so, so that we can we can escape from the world but to shape how we relate to the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. What difference would it make if you think of yourself then as a foreigner and a sojourner in the world? Well, it won't solve all your problems, but it may temper your disappointments in the face of your problems because you're only a foreigner. And foreigners... Don't usually have it that great. How else might this apply? Well, maybe it will shape, if you believe this about yourself, maybe it'll shape the way that you love and welcome foreigners and exiles among us. Whether they're outsiders in your culture or outsiders in the church. You were a stranger to God's house and he brought you home to his kingdom community on earth in the bosom of his heart with the promise of your heavenly home and yet he left you in this world as a stranger now to the world are you growing sympathetic to people who are a long way from their own home and maybe it will shape you this way if you are captivated and seduced by the American dream to think we have it good and if I can get it just a little bit better here and now that's exactly what I need and that's what I should want well then then maybe you're not thinking like a foreigner and an exile ought to think and if you did maybe you wouldn't get sucked into so much chasing what this world chases after maybe you wouldn't get seduced What about you? Do you think of yourself this way? As a foreigner. You have to tell yourself that again and again and again. In order to live like a pilgrim in this world. To get your bearings. Number two. You also need to recognize your home. Verses 14 through the first part of 16. Notice what he says. You need to recognize your only home. For people, he says, who speak thus. In other words, those who say such things what things that that they are strangers and sojourners uh, what people speak thus who's he talking about well he 's thinking of Abraham and he 's speaking of Jacob for sure Abraham you may recall in the story of genesis is in genesis chapter twenty three verse twenty four he was sorrowing after the death of his wife, Sarah, and he was seeking for a place to bury her, but he didn't own any land. And so he went to the Hittite who ruled and owned the property where he lived. And he said to them, Genesis twenty three twenty four, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I'm a sojourner, he says but I need a place to bury my wife. And Jacob, in his story, in Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, when Jacob uh, came before Pharaoh, uh, when Joseph was in Egypt, Pharaoh asked how old Jacob was, and Jacob began with these words, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. That's an interesting way to talk, and the writer is saying that's an, people who talk this way. End of verse 14, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And the word he uses is fatherland, country of origin, where you're from, where your home is. And you may get the idea, because he said that verse 15, that they're looking to go back to from where they came in Mesopotamia. But he doesn't want you to think that that's what they wanted to do because he says they had ample opportunity to do so, but they never took the opportunity to go back to where they had come from because they saw that their homeland, their fatherland, was not Mesopotamia, but it was forward, a heavenly country. And so, verse 16, they desired that better country, a heavenly one. It is what was promised to them. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one, and they recognized that that was their only home and it helped them get their bearings and see them through their pilgrimage. Now, do you recognize your only home? Do you live in light of it? If you have this kind of desire, this yearning for that home, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he describes you this way, but according to his that is God's promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells is that what you're longing for that's what Christians long for and if you're longing and yearning for that home of righteousness that will keep you on track and there's a wonderful example of how it keeps you or brings you back on track in the life of an elderly missionary couple ray steadman tells about them they had gone to africa to do missions work and uh, then they were coming home they were retiring they were old they had no pension their health was broken they felt defeated but they were coming home not knowing what awaited them in New York. And so they booked passage on an ocean liner because this is like the early 1900s and this is how you cross the ocean. They booked passage on a ship, uh, a, a ship that as it so happens also had President Theodore Roosevelt on it. Teddy was coming home from a trip to Africa where he had been on a big game hunting expedition. So there was this large entourage of people surrounding the president and a great hoopla about Teddy and the husband told his wife aboard ship it kind of made him bitter there was all this attention given to the president when he comes back from hunting game but he says here we seek to faithfully serve the Lord for years and years and no one pays any attention to us and she said well you ought not to think that way and he acknowledged that but that it was very difficult. And then when they got to New York, they came into dock, and as you can imagine, there were all kinds of dignitaries there. The mayor was there. Uh, The big band was there. The paper had a big spread all about the safari, the hunting expedition, and all of that. And this missionary couple leaves the ship quietly. They rent a flat on the east side. They hope to find some work to carry them through the last years of their life. Life And that night the man's spirit broke. And he just said, I can't take it. God isn't treating us fairly. And his wife said, why don't you go into the bedroom and tell the Lord that? And so he did. And he came out a little later and his countenance was a little different. And she said, what happened? And he said, the Lord dealt with me about that. He said, I told him that I didn't like the idea that we come home and the president comes in and there's this great welcome and sensational attention paid to him. But when we come home, there's not one person there to meet us. And then he said, it was as if the Lord laid his hand on my shoulder and said, but you're not home yet. Does that make any difference to you? As you think that way. Do you recognize your only home? You might say. That doesn't help me with my problems now. But we might reply. That actually could be. One of your biggest root problems. Now. What do you mean? Maybe. Your life is a series of ongoing problems and you agonize with the feeling of restlessness. You want everything to work out here and you want life to go well here and when it doesn't, you feel restless. You want to move on. And the root cause of that restlessness may be that you're rootless. You don't have the assurance that you have a home. And so you need to recognize your true home and this isn't it. But maybe your problems aren't serial problems. Maybe they're just sudden. Maybe actually life has been going very well for you here, and you're really starting to feel settled in and settled down. And then suddenly life throws you a curveball, and the pitch has bruised the batter on its way in. What is that, you say? Well, maybe. Maybe it's your loving Heavenly Father throwing you a curveball because He won't allow you to settle for a second-rate imitation of the home Jesus is preparing for you. You need to recognize your only home and you're not home yet, He says. You need to recognize you're a foreigner. You're a stranger. You're an exile you're not home yet and thirdly you need to recognize your high privilege end of verse 16 therefore he says God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city he is not ashamed this is your high privilege What's the therefore? Therefore, therefore, God is not ashamed of them. Well, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had clung to his promises in the face of circumstances that didn't answer the promises. But they clung, they fastened in faith to the promises. And therefore, he says, God is not ashamed of them. And they are not going to be ashamed of him. He hasn't failed them, he hasn't not come through. He hasn't forgotten about them. He hasn't given them everything yet, not yet, that he promised to them. But he has prepared a city for them as for us. And past tense, prepared a city. Notice the amazing statement. He is not ashamed of them. What is he saying? Well, he's not saying these were really great people. They did so much good in this world. They have really scored brownie points with me. And I'm just, I mean, who can't but smile at these people? They're awesome. That's not really what he's saying. They did, however, believe his promises. But you remember their faults, don't you? I mean, you remember that Abraham doubted the Lord. He always struggled with assurance and needed to be reassured by the Lord. You remember that Sarah herself concocted some really bad Plans to try to fulfill what seemed to be God's purposes. Those ended up being a disaster. And then she laughed at God himself when he made and reiterated the promise of a child. You might remember that Isaac was a thick-headed kind of guy who thought that He could make God's plans go his own way. And you remember Jacob, the usurper, Jacob, the deceiver, Jacob. I mean, I think most of us would rather live next to an Esau than a Jacob, probably. Jacob was always scheming. He was sneaky. And you know what's fascinating? Hebrews 11 doesn't mention a word. I I have time and again. Hebrews 11 doesn't mention a word about their faults. There's no debunking of them here. We live in a day when biographies today are all about debunking the mythical past of the good person in the past. Movies about people always debunking. Our history lessons today seem to be almost the enjoyment of the faults of our forebears with little delight in their well-doing on whose shoulders we enjoy so much. Every effort, it seems, is so often made to show that the person back there isn't worthy to be thought about. Unless, of course, you're buying the book or paying to go to the movie. And then if you'll just give them a little bit of time to think about them so you can forever dismiss them as somebody that's important but it's interesting when you come to the new testament you find that it isn't a great debunker of the saints who were sinners but what is remembered are not the mistakes and not the doubts and not the sins but rather the faith of the people of God and that is a tremendous encouragement and I hope to all of us because I I will say for myself as a pastor and as a Christian there's a coming day I know when I have to face Jesus Christ and given an account for what I have done and there will be so many things that in my own own mind I will say I wish I had not done that and I wish I had done that better But there will be no modern biographers there when we stand before the Lord. There will be Satan, the enemy of our soul, the accuser of the brethren. But Jesus will be right there. And what will he say? That one is mine. I died for their sins. I remember them no more. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. This is a wonderful thing. When the writer of the book of Hebrews Remembers these people he remembers their faith and what will be recorded about us is that we're righteous as a gift through faith in Christ and what will be remembered is the good fruit born of that righteous standing with God Jesus will say well done my good and faithful servant we will want to say on my best day I didn't even do what a faithful steward should do And he will say, well done. So take heart. And take heart that God doesn't blush to be known as your God. He doesn't blush. He's not ashamed or embarrassed by his people. He takes to himself the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And adds it to his own to be known to the world as the God of Abraham. The god of Jacob there was a a situation in an island east of Madagascar during the time when slaves were there and there were lots of slaves and the sign of a slave was that you went barefoot you couldn't wear shoes there was a woman and her daughter who were slaves and therefore shoeless and this woman saved everything she could she you know held back all her spending she accumulated enough over time to buy the freedom of one of them and she bought her daughter's freedom that her daughter could wear shoes she was free and she really liked that the daughter did and then on one occasion not long after the daughter was in a room in the house seated on a couch and the mother very affectionate mother A not self-conscious mother a mother with very natural affections uh, walked up and sat in the seat next to her daughter and after a few moments her daughter turned to her and in a rage said how dare you sit down beside me I am a free woman and you are a slave rise and leave the room what is that Well, that's a snob, for sure. But there's more to it. There's shame. I don't want to be associated with that kind of person anymore. I'm ashamed of the very memory of my being a slave like that woman. That woman who purchased her freedom. And By contrast, if anyone would have a reason to be ashamed of us, it would be the God who knows everything about us, and yet who says, I am not ashamed of you. Has that seeped into your heart? What a great privilege you have. only you know how many times you have prayed that prayer lord i believe help my unbelief only you know how many times you have prayed that song come thou fount of every blessing to my heart sing my grace oh to grace how great a debtor daily i'm constrained to be let that grace now let her like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love Take my heart. Take and seal it. Seal for thy courts above. Only you know the kinds of things we could pull out of your closet and put on display. Only you and the God who knows you, the God who is not ashamed to be called your God. That is a high privilege. And that will give you your bearings in life. If you're going to go on, you've got to remember your... Identity, who you really are. And you need to remember and recognize you're not home yet. And you need to know that God doesn't blush when he thinks of you. He claims you. So keep on keeping on all the way to the end. Henry Light, we'll close with this. Henry Light, the, fa- the pastor who very famously now has given us three hymns that the Christian church continues to sing he gave us praise my soul the king of heaven he gave us Jesus I my cross have taken and he gave us abide with me Uh, in 1847 he died of tuberculosis for about the last seven years of his life he was suffering with it and he and the doctors knew that that eventually it was going to get him here's what he said of this pilgrimage we're on. He said, My rest is in heaven. My rest is not here. Then why should I murmur when trials are near? Be hushed, my dark spirit. The worst that can come but shortens my journey and hastens me home. It is not for me to be seeking my bliss nor building my hopes in a region like this, I look for a city that hands have not piled. I pant for a country by sin undefiled. Let doubt, then, and danger my progress oppose. They only make heaven more sweet at the close. Come joy or come sorrow, whate'er may be fall a home with my god will make up for it all amen may that be your hope let's pray father thank you for the gift of your son who has gone before us as a forerunner into your very throne room the glory uh, of heaven itself to prepare a place for us with you I pray that we would build our lives on the rock, Jesus himself. In his name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing of our home going.